Good morning. Exodus 33, 18 through 23. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Exodus thirty-four twenty-nine through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you all for joining us today, joining us online from your homes and here in our sanctuary. It's so great to have you all with us today. We're going to begin a new series of messages for four weeks. We're going to talk about the glory of God. But I'd like to begin with a moment of prayer uh, today, especially prayer for our nation. Boy, we really need to be praying for our country in these times, don't we? So let's pray together now. Father, we come this morning again in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How we thank you that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And Lord, your word tells us that you uphold the very universe by the word of your power. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray you would bring healing to our nation. We pray that you would guide our leaders to make wise, just, right decisions. And we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon the United States of America. In the midst of all that we see happening around us, Lord, we pray this will be a time when the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will shine forth, when your word will prevail, when you will be glorified, and the greatness of your majesty and glory will be seen in this land. We ask this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you again for joining us today for our worship service. We're going to begin talking about the glory of God. And as I was thinking back over the years, I don't recall ever having done a sermon on the topic of the glory of God, uh, much less four weeks as we're going to be doing in the month of January The glory of God has been called by theologians one of the most difficult Christian terms to define. 
And yet, as you read your Bibles this month, look for the, the words, the glory of God, or some form uh, of uh, glory as it's used in reference to God or God's works. I think you'll find it throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. I hope the Lord will use our study this month to do something very beautiful in each one of our lives. As I look at the people in Scripture who encountered the glory of God in some way to varying degrees, people who were touched by the glory of God, people like Moses, people like King David in the Old Testament, people like the Apostle Paul, they actually had an experience with the glory of God. And that experience changed them radically. And from the time that they experienced the glory of God, or got some glimpse of the glory of God, they were changed. And they longed for the presence of God. Moses, Sarah just read about uh, this morning, prayed, Lord, show me your glory. And he prayed that because he had already had glimpses of the glory of God when he had gone up on the mountain with God to receive commandments for the people. King David said, uh, Lord, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I have beheld you in the sanctuary and seen your power and your glory. Because he'd seen the glory of God, got some, gotten some glimpse of the glory of God, he was a God seeker. The Apostle Paul encountered the glory of God on the Damascus Road in the form of a, a blinding light. And Paul became a God seeker so much that he would one day write, I long to depart and be with Christ, for that is better by far. People who are touched by the glory of God become God seekers. And that can be true for you and me, as I think we'll see as we study this topic of the glory of God. Let's begin with an attempt at a definition. <clears throat> it has been called one of the most difficult terms, Christian terms to define the glory of God, but let's, let's make uh, some attempts at that this morning. The Hebrew word translated glory, as we read about, as uh, was read a moment ago for us in the book of Exodus, is the Hebrew word kabod. And it simply means heavy weighty, of substance. Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser says, glory is a special term that depicts God's visible and active presence. Glory is, is always associated with <clears throat> the very presence of God. Now, in the passage we've just seen, as you see on the screens before you, the glory of God is a visible, a visible manifestation of his goodness. Now, let's look again at the passage we read just a moment ago in Exodus 33, because I think we can get a glimpse into to what the glory of God really means or signifies. Exodus 33, Moses says to God, show me your glory. <clears throat> so God says in response, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So it seems that God is equating all my goodness with his glory. I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. 
and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God goes on to say to Moses, but you cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and, and live. In other words, nobody can see me in the fullness of my glory and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, so again, God is equating my glory with all my goodness. While my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So note that God's glory is something that is seen. God tells Moses, you cannot see the fullness of my glory and live. And he also equates his glory with all my goodness. So the glory of God is used to speak of his, uh, the fullness of his goodness, his being, and in Scripture, typically glory is something visible, a visible manifestation of God's presence. Now, let's go a little further and see how the Old Testament speaks more about the glory of God. In other places in the Old Testament, God's glory is expressed by fire and by cloud. If you've ever read the book of Exodus, you know that when God called the Israelites out of Egypt and uh, led them, he would open the Red Sea, he would lead them through the wilderness. Scripture says the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. This was indicative of God's presence. They were assured of God's presence because they could see that bright fire at night, that, that great cloud over them in the day. And the same is seen in other passages. For example, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we read these words. This is a passage where Solomon is dedicating the Lord's temple, which has been completed and now he's praying. And as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, we read, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of God. The glory of God filled the temple. And what happened when the glory of God filled the temple? The priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the temple, filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, what was their response? They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good for steadfast love endures forever. So how do people respond when they encounter the glory of God? Humility, falling down on their faces before his presence. So. God's glory is expressed by fire and cloud. It's a visible manifestation of all of his goodness. There's more in the Old Testament, though. We could further define the glory of God uh, by seeing that it has been expressed by beauty and by brightness. I think this particular verse in Ezekiel 1 and verse 28 is especially beautiful the prophet Ezekiel had great visions of God 
And we read in chapter 1, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. Do you imagine seeing a rainbow that was unobscured by clouds in all of its brightness and fullness and glory? Like the appearance of the bow that's in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. What's his response when he sees this? And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Ezekiel gets a glimpse of the glory of God and he falls on his face. Beauty, great beauty, great brightness. You know, Jesus left the glory of God in heaven and he was going to return to it one day. But in the meantime, in Matthew chapter 17, he went up on a mountain. And if you're reading your Bibles, you'll see a heading of that section that probably calls this the Mount of Transfiguration. Because Jesus was transfigured there. We read in Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. <clears throat> his clothes became white as light. The Bible doesn't use the word glory here, but if we were to later read 2 Peter chapter 1, we would read of Peter recounting this experience there on the mountain. And he would say that God the Father gave to Jesus honor and glory when God the Father spoke the majestic glory. This was the glory of God. Peter and James and John, they got just a glimpse of it. When Jesus was so bright, his face was like the shining of the sun. His clothes were so radiant as no one else could uh, possibly make them. Later, the book of Hebrews refers to Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God. So, Beauty, brightness, light. The disciples of Jesus, after seeing him on the mount in Matthew 17, says when the disciples heard this, when God spoke from heaven, the majestic glory, they fell on their faces and were terrified. People encountering the glory of God fall on their faces before him in light of this great beauty. Let's look at a few more definitions. These are definitions by some well-known Christian scholar, theologians, who uh, would admit God's glory is a very difficult thing to define. Albert Muller says, God's glory is best understood as the intrinsic beauty and external manifestation. That is, God's glory is something that people see of his being and character. John Piper says the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. Great theologian recently died, J.I. Packer said God's excellence and praiseworthiness set forth in display that which is seen. And Wayne Grudem, God's glory is the created brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. The glory of God is a revelation of who he is. God himself, beauty, brightness, visible display of his goodness. We might, we might 
say then that glory could be understood as the beauty, the brightness, the purity, the perfection of God's very presence. The word glory, again, is found throughout Scripture. And again, as you're reading your Bibles, I encourage you, just look for the word glory or some form of it. Glorify, glorified, glorious. You'll find it everywhere in the Old and New Testament, incredibly prevalent in Scripture. And while Scripture reveals God's glory to us, creation does too. You know, the Bible tells us that creation declares, it's shouting out, it's, it's proclaiming, it's preaching the glory of God. You'll see on your screen some pictures that uh, Tim pulled together, actual pictures. And as you look at these shots of the created heavens for a moment, I'm just going to slowly read a few, few verses. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice has gone out through all the earth in their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its courts with joy. These are just a few bits of the artwork of our glorious creator. Just a little bit of his artwork. And the scripture says creation. The most beautiful things in creation, they're declaring. They're testifying to the glory of God. Can you imagine what the actual glory of God will be like? The Apostle John says, one day we'll see him. And we'll be like him when we see him as he is. Because the Bible says for those who know Jesus Christ or in Christ, they will be glorified. Now, one other point we should note about these who write about the glory of God, who saw, who experienced the glory of God. God's people who have experienced His glory, not the fullness of it. God told Moses, you can't see my face. No man can see my face and live. I'll give you a glimpse. But God peop God's people who have experienced His glory long for His presence even more. People who have grasped something of the greatness of the glory of God long for God, long for His presence. Moses, who had seen His glory on the mountain, later says, Lord, please show me Your glory. King David said, Lord, I love the habitation of Your house and the place where Your glory dwells. He wrote, one thing I've asked of the Lord, that I'll seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. He would later write, I've seen you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. This is what made David a God seeker. 
If you read the Psalms, he's just seeking the presence of God more fully. Jesus himself, in the longest recorded prayer of Jesus we have, it's in John chapter 17. He's praying to the Father. And notice what he says. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to die, be raised, ascend to heaven. He says, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus, of course, existed as the Son of God with the Father before this world existed in perfect glory. He came to this earth, but he would return to that glory. The more you experience God's presence, the more you long for God's presence. Now, we're going over a lot of scripture today, and I know we're going through it quickly. We're going to come back to some of these passages, but I want to read a few verses now. You won't see these on your screens, but just listen to these words for a moment, if you will, from Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul wrote these words. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and Paul suffered a lot, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Do you hear what Paul's saying? This created world, creation is groaning with longing for the revealing of the glory of the, the sons of God, the children of God, because God has destined those who know him, those who've come to him through faith in Jesus for eternal glory. And even creation is longing for this glory. Moses longed for this glory. David longed for this glory. Paul longed for this glory. Even Jesus longed for this return to glory. And even creation longs for the glory of God. A touch of the glory of God, a glimpse of the glory of God makes people God-seekers. Those who've experienced His glory seek Him more and more. Well, let me ask you today, are you a God-seeker? Are you seeking to experience in your life more fully the presence of God? And we'll talk in a moment about how we as believers experience, embrace the glory of God. Now, again, we'll come back to some of these passages, but I'd like to just talk briefly for, for a moment about the, the New Testament, the biblical teaching on our relationship to the glory of God now in this life. First of all, we understand that human beings always have, always will fall short of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
The more we understand the greatness of the glory of God, the more we understand the reality of this statement that we all fall short. We human beings, when we think about our, our spiritual righteousness, we have this tendency to evaluate ourselves by comparison with other people and think, well, relative to everybody else, I measure up pretty well. I'm, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm, I, God's going to accept me into heaven. I'm generally good. I'm better than the average person by far. Nowhere does Scripture say God evaluates our spiritual standing, our spiritual righteousness on the basis of how we stack up against other people, but rather the glory of God. And on that basis, all, of course, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The problem is we human beings often seek counterfeit glories. There are counterfeit glories. There are substitute glories. When Satan tempted Jesus, he took him up on a mountaintop and somehow showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan did, said to Jesus, all these I will give you and their glory if you will bow down and worship me. People have a tendency to embrace counterfeit glories. Jesus said to the religious leaders on one occasion, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Human beings fall short of the glory of God. However, God himself offers us glory in the gospel. Now, a great passage for you to study this week as we dig into this idea of the biblical teaching on glory is 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4. It's there that I think the Apostle Paul writes more about the glory of God than anywhere else. And he is reflecting back on the passages in, in Exodus 33 and 34 that Sarah read for us a little bit earlier. He writes these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Now, these are challenging words to understand. What Paul is saying, he's referring to the law, the law of God that God gave to Moses as the ministry of death. Not that the law was bad, the law was good, but the law could save no one. The law shows us our lawlessness. As the Apostle Paul said, I wouldn't have known what it meant to covet if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. The law brought our sin to light, our spiritual death to, to uh, light. The wages of sin is death. But Paul says, even that giving of the law was so glorious that Moses, when he went up in, into God's presence, when he came down the mountain, his face was shining. The Israelites couldn't even look at him. He had to put a veil over his face. Jesus is the remedy for our law-breaking. And in his death on the cross, where he bore the judgment for our law-breaking and our sin, 
our coveting and every other sin. Jesus provided the gift of his righteousness so that Paul refers to the gospel with the words you see on the screen before you when he says, will not the ministry of the Spirit have more glory? He's speaking of the, the ministry of the gospel as the ministry of the Spirit. For there, if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the giving of the law, the ministry of righteousness, the bringing of the gospel, must far exceed it in glory. Paul is saying God has brought us something that's so much greater than that with which Moses came down the mountain. Even though his face was shining, there's something far, far greater. And it's what God has done in the gospel of Jesus. Not only that, but as we have embraced the gospel and are Christians and are believers, God changes us throughout life as we behold his glory in the gospel as we behold his glory in the gospel. We read these words in 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We behold the glory of God in the gospel as we embrace what God has done for us. We walk by faith, not by sight. Not that we're straining to, to get a vision or to see something. If God gives that, that's, that's up to God. We walk by faith, not by sight. But we do experience the very real presence of God by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And as we know Him, as we seek Him, as we study His Word, as we see Jesus revealed in the Gospels, we're being transformed by Him, Paul says. But there's more, Paul says, much more, much, much more for the believer. One of the clearest teachings of the New Testament by those who experience the glory of God is that anticipation of future glory gives God's children a very different perspective towards suffering in this life. So the Apostle Paul goes on to write, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Have any of you noticed that to be true yet in life? <laughs> you get a little bit older and you can't jump as high or run as fast and things seem to change a little bit. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction. I, I think it's amazing. The Apostle Paul referred to his own afflictions. He'd been beaten with rods. He'd been beaten in every kind of way. He'd gone without food. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been in prison. He said, our light momentary afflictions 
preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Imagine that. As we look, not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. But you can be so sure about this glory. Because the things that are unseen, these things of God, they are eternal. And Paul says, it is so great, and it is for you as a believer, if you have embraced God's salvation in Jesus. Because those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, Paul writes, even though it hasn't happened yet, he also glorified. We could go on and on with verses that focus on the value of the anticipation of future glory. And we will do that in coming weeks as we talk more about the glory to come because the Bible says God has destined you as a believer for eternal glory. But I'll stop here this morning and um, I'd like to pray for a moment. Would you join me? Father, we come in the name of Jesus, and I pray for your people. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. I pray this morning for those of your people who need encouragement from the Holy Spirit to trust you, to seek you, to walk more closely with you. Father, where there is bitterness in someone's soul, I pray they would confess it today, repent of it, receive your healing, cleansing, and that they would forgive those they need to forgive. Let nothing stand in the way of the richness and the fullness of our fellowship with you. Lord, we don't see your glory with our eyes today, but we believe. We walk by faith and not by sight. And we know that you are glorious. And Lord, we long for that day when we will see you face to face. And we're mindful of these words from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen and amen.